I invite you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. I appreciate Pastor McWilliams thinking this will be super. I was bowled over when he said that. That is terrible. But I could not resist. 2 Peter chapter 2. Look at verses 4 through 10a. You see that natural break there? We'll read verses 1 through 10 for context. Let me pray for us as we come to read God's Word. Our Father, as we come to learn a little more about the false prophets who have corrupted your church, we are reminded that were it not for your grace, we would ourselves be false teachers or be led astray by them. And so we ask that you would be at work in us to do what is pleasing in your sight, that you would renew us in the inner man, that you would bring to completion the good work you've begun in each of your people unto the day of Christ Jesus. Make us discerning and wise to be like that man wisdom, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me as we read 2 Peter 2, 1 through 10. This is God's word. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we saw last time, Peter describes the false teachers who are corrupting the church, churches that he is writing to. He describes them, their doctrine, and their character. Their doctrine is characterized by a denial of the future judgment merely as an excuse to live in sin. If Christ was going to return, they said, then he would have returned already. So since he hasn't returned, he's not going to return at all. So you can live however you want, and there will be no judgment at which you'll have to give an answer. And as we could expect, their character manifested particularly in sexual immorality and greed. These false teachers were corrupting the church, and they were actually gaining a following. 
Peter wrote in that paragraph to assure God's people that the, the demise of these false teachers was sure. It would certainly come. No matter how prosperous they seem to be, no matter how great a following they actually have, as we read in verse 3, their condemnation is not idle, their destruction is not asleep. Here, as we'll see this evening, Peter turns to give unmistakable, undeniable proof that the false teachers will certainly come under God's righteous judgment. He does this by giving concrete examples of God's judgment throughout biblical history. These examples are all from very early in the history of God's people, from their infancy. All these examples take place before the birth of Isaac. These examples serve as clear evidence that God will condemn all who oppose him at the end of this age. Nahum 1.3, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So Peter is unpacking this to answer the question, you say that the ungodly will be condemned. You say that God will surely condemn the wicked. How can I know that for sure? How can you say that judgment from God is actually coming? And the short answer is because God has already revealed his judgment before. He has done it before, and he will certainly do it again. Each of these examples preview the final judgment of the day of the Lord. And it's not just judgment that we see in this, in this part of Peter's epistle. We also see redemption and blessing in the examples of Noah and Lot. Noah and Lot serve to foreshadow the rescue of all God's people from this present evil age at Christ's return. And Peter structure, structures this in an if-then structure. It would be like saying, if I stick my finger in this outlet, then I will be electrocuted. If this, then that. If condemnation came upon them long ago, then condemnation will come upon all who are in rebellion against God at the end of this age. If salvation came upon God's people long ago, then you who trust in him will see the salvation of the Lord. If this, then that. So here we have an assurance to God's people that in spite of appearances to the contrary, in spite of things, in spite of how things actually are even, God's purposes of judgment and salvation to the wicked and to the righteous are sure. He will bring them to completion. We may at times be tempted to think that however things are going right now, whether good or bad, that is how they're going to stay. If our circumstances are pleasant, the warnings of Scripture, the real threat of God's wrath, may not ring true as it should. If our circumstances are bitter, then the precious promises of God may not be sweet to us as they should be. We can get things completely backwards. We can read God's word through the light of our experience instead of reading our experiences through the light of God's word. In spite of how things appear, even in spite of how they are, we are to remember and confess with the psalmist at all times, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Psalm 103. So at all times, under all circumstances, even the circumstance of false teachers corrupting the church, God's people are to remind themselves of these things. And it would be enough for us. It would be enough for the church simply to hear God's promise that what he has begun in us, he will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It would be sufficient 
to hear God's promises, to know that he cannot lie, and to trust him, knowing that he will indeed bring to pass all that he promises. That would be sufficient. But God has gone beyond merely promising his people that he will do good to them, and he has gone beyond merely threatening judgment to all who oppose him. Here, Peter reminds us of actual examples of God redeeming his people and condemning his enemies. Here we have concrete proof that God is neither apathetic nor powerless to help his people in their trials, but will surely deliver them, and he will condemn all those who oppose him. So we have a warning and an encouragement, a warning to the ungodly of their own judgment to come, and an encouragement to God's people that he will bring them home to heavenly glory. If God has already condemned the ungodly, then he will do the same for you, for the false teachers and all who oppose him. If God has shown his faithfulness to his people all along, he will do the same for you as well, all who trust in him. So children, think of it this way. You get a little bit older, you wonder if your parents are going to take care of you or if they're just going to leave you all to yourself. You start to doubt and to wonder. Are my parents just going to abandon me? What if I actually need them? And you ask your parents this, and they remind you, well, when you were a baby, we fed you, we changed you, we put you to bed multiple times each day, even if you didn't sleep. We strapped you into your car seat. We baby-proofed the house so that you wouldn't get hurt. And they give all kinds of examples of what they did to take care of you when you were a child, thus showing we're not going to leave you on your own just because you get older. They assure you that they will always be there for you. They won't stop caring for you just because you're getting a little bit older. They remind you of things they did for you when you were a baby, things you don't necessarily remember, to give you confidence that their care for you has no expiration date. Now that is a silly example, but it, do, it does serve to show that it's similar to what we see here. God is telling his people that he is going to take care of them. He is going to take care of the false teachers who are corrupting his church. Just as God has perfectly shown his steadfast love to his people in all ages, from infancy to maturity, from the beginning and at every point, he will certainly do so now, and he will certainly do so until the end. So we begin looking at this passage by seeing the examples of God's judgment. We keep in mind that Matthew, Matthew Henry here says that these are examples of God's righteous judgment upon the un ungodly proposed to our serious consideration. So first, we see that God judged angels, verse 4. Well, what do we know about angels? A brief sketch. Isaiah chapter 6, we remember that Isaiah saw the glory of God in the temple and that there were angels there singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You'll remember that an angel rolled away the stone from the tomb, the tomb of Jesus. An angel announced his resurrection. In Christ's parables, he, he speaks of angels separating the wicked and the righteous at the end of history. You recall from Hebrews chapter 2, as well as Stephen's speech in Acts 7, that angels were instrumental in delivering the law in the Old Covenant. And there's a parallel to, to this verse, 2 Peter 2.4, in Jude 6. Jude speaks of the angels not staying within their own position of authority, 
but they left their proper dwelling, and God has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And certainly there's more to say about angels, but from this little sketch we see that angels were created by God to be his special servants. They are not the image of God like you and I are, yet they are creatures who possess great glory and power. And if you skim down there to the second half of verse 10 into verse 11, that the angels are described as great in might and power. And, the, and Matthew, in, at the end of his gospel, describes the angel who sat at Christ's tomb, saying that his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. So from this we see that mysteriously, at some point, some angels chose to rebel against God, not wanting to submit to his authority, not wanting to be his special servants. So as a result, God condemned them. He sent them away from his glorious presence into darkness, and they are reserved for ultimate judgment at the end of history. So in this sense, what is true for angels is also true for wicked men. There is an intermediate state and an ultimate state. Mankind and angels are either in God's favor, awaiting his consummate blessing at the end of history, or they are under God's wrath, awaiting his consummate judgment at the end of history. So the point here is not to give us interesting information on angels to feed our speculation. The point is that even the glorious angels fell. God did not spare these glorious angels when they sinned. What makes you think that you will escape God's judgment? So the fall of angels is an example of God's judgment upon all wickedness. God did not spare these glorious angels. He will not spare you. It is concrete proof that God will not let the guilty go unpunished, especially those who pollute the church with their false teaching and immorality, as these false teachers are doing in Peter's day. These fallen angels are kept in darkness until the last day. And as bad as that darkness is that these angels are kept in, as bad as that is, it is merely an anticipation of the judgment of the great day of the Lord to come. Alexander Nisbet, in his commentary, expresses this well, saying that these chains of gloomy darkness are nothing else but God's irresistible power and terrible justice, overruling, tormenting, and restraining these angels. And he goes on to say that these angels live in the constant feeling of the wrath of the Almighty and in dreadful expectation of a greater measure of his wrath, which they will get at the day of judgment. What is true of these angels is true of all who have not come to Christ in repentance and faith. They are under God's wrath right now, and they will receive the fullness of his wrath at the final judgment. So what do fallen angels and what do wicked men who are currently under God's wrath right now, what do they do about that fact? They suppress it by their unrighteousness. They ignore it. They deceive themselves into thinking that they are actually not under the wrath of a holy God. At least the angels have some awareness of what is coming to them. Men and women, still dead in their sin, pretend that nothing is wrong. And such were some of us. That is the saddest condition anyone could possibly be in, to be under God's wrath, pretending that nothing is wrong, and not crying out to God for mercy. 
So these angels are cast down from their privileged status. They are stripped of their glory and dignity. So here you see that Peter is arguing from the greater to the less. If even the glorious angels did not escape God's judgment when they rebelled against him, how then will wicked men escape God's judgment? So that is God judging the angels. Secondly, we see that God sent the flood in Noah's day, verse 5. We're reminded here of God's judgment upon the entire world in Noah's flood. You'll notice that Peter calls the entire world in Noah's day the world of the ungodly. And you'll recall the reason for God's judgment upon the entire world in the flood in Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Except for Noah and his household, God saw nothing but wickedness, nothing but ungodliness. And that passage in Genesis 6 goes on to say that God was grieved in his heart because of the great ungodliness that he saw. God wiped out that evil world and he started a new world with righteous Noah and his household. Noah is remembered in in that Genesis 6 passage as a righteous man. Blameless in his generation, he walked with God. And you'll remember that Noah is listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. It says there that he was a man of whom the world was not worthy. So in spite of the great wickedness of the world in Noah's day, God preserved a remnant. He did not start completely over with the human race. God at every point has an elect, faithful remnant no matter how great the ungodliness in the world gets. That remnant is not inherently special or distinct from the evil world. Were it not for God's free grace, Noah and his family would have been destroyed in the flood as well. Were it not God's free grace to us, we would be destroyed. Nevertheless, God is pleased to preserve for himself a remnant. And just as God did with Noah and his family, so he is pleased to do throughout history. There will always be a church on earth, always the people of God, regardless of the activity of the evil one. Peter says here that Noah was a herald or a preacher of righteousness. Noah called his wicked generation to repentance. One commentator says that Noah held forth the way of eternal life and the duties of holiness. Part of that work, part of Noah's being a herald of righteousness, was his building the ark that that God designed for him to make. Think of Noah's patience in building that ark, and his duty that he carried out as being a herald of righteousness. Consistent, persistent witness to God's glory in the midst of unbelief. Listen to how Calvin unpacks that. The design of Peter here is to set before our eyes God's wrath against the wicked so as to encourage us at the same time to imitate the saints, particularly Noah. Noah preached righteousness, calling men to repent of their sin and trust in the Lord who was willing and able to forgive. And that period of Noah's preaching, the period of of his preaching while building the ark, even that period was one of delay. God was pleased to delay his judgment for a time. That period was a delay of judgment in which there was time for men to repent and believe. 
God did not bring his judgment immediately upon the world. He gave time for repentance. God was pleased to delay his judgment so that sinners could turn and be forgiven. And the same thing is true today in this present evil age. Again, Alexander Nisbet nails this aspect. He says, It ought to be esteemed marvelous mercy in God that he does not immediately thrust sinners down to hell when they provoke him, and much more that he has provided a remedy and offers pardon to them. So Christian, are you not glad that God did not bring his righteousness upon you immediately? That he provided you time and opportunity to repent? That he was willing to forgive? And that is true for each of us. God has delayed his judgment to give you an opportunity to turn to him for the forgiveness of your sin. So is he not abundantly gracious to do so? And though there may be fewer here who do not know the Lord Jesus on a Sunday evening like this, I would still remind you that if you have not taken advantage of this opportunity, if you have not taken advantage of God's grace to you, make use of the opportunity. Romans 2.4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Or as the King James says, do you despise the riches of God's kindness? You do, unless you turn and he, and he would heal you. Do not despise the riches of God's kindness to you. Cry out to him and you will find him to be merciful. So you see, just as Peter argued in this way with the angels, he argues this way, from the greater to the less. If the whole world was condemned in Noah's day, how will the wicked of this present age escape God's judgment? In spite of the multitude of that world, in spite of its prosperity, it was all destroyed except for Noah and his family. But see, there is another greater to lesser argument here, not about judgment, but about redemption. For the people of God, if God rescued Noah, if God spared the one whom he loved, the one who found favor in his sight, will he not also rescue you from your trial? God preserved Noah from the old world, that world of ungodliness, to be the beginning of the new world after the flood. And in the same way, all who belong to Christ now will be preserved from the present world we will be preserved from the pouring out of God's wrath at the end of this age to inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Just as the world in Noah's day was destroyed, so all who oppose Christ will be destroyed. And just as Noah was rescued, so also will God rescue all who belong to him in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that God sent the flood. Thirdly, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6. Another parallel in, in Jude, verse 7, referring to Sodom and Gomorrah, where Jude talks about the, the, those cities indulging in sexual immorality, pursuing unnatural desire, and they are so constituted examples of God's eternal punishment. So we see from this that Sodom and Gomorrah are not isolated cities that are of mere historical interest. God used Sodom and Gomorrah as examples of what will come upon all who reject the Lord Jesus, all who walk in any type of ungodliness. 
So we are taught to read of this example of God's wrath coming upon sinful men and see that this too will happen to us if we do not repent. It is not merely true for those cities, it is true for all people. In the words of Jesus, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We are not to hear about Sodom and Gomorrah and conclude, well, I don't live like they did in spectacular wickedness. Surely I will not be condemned as they were. We are not to think, how could God do such a thing to these people? They were just being who they were, who they were born to be, how offensive this is. No, we are to hear about Sodom and Gomorrah and be assured that what happened to them will happen to all who walk in rebellion against the one true God. We are to be assured that their judgment is certain proof, certain proof that all the ungodly will come to know God's wrath on the last day. So don't compare yourself to Sodom and Gomorrah and conclude that you may be relatively a little better than they were. Don't be offended by what happened to them. They are examples of what will happen to all the ungodly. And as examples, what happened to them is recorded here for us to remind us of God's wrath and of God's grace. If you do not repent, you will come to know God's judgment just like they did. But if you do repent, you will be rescued from the wrath to come. God will have mercy on you because he is a merciful God. He will be gracious to you because he is a gracious God. He will reconcile you to himself by the blood of his only son. So if Sodom and Gomorrah did not escape God's judgment, how will wicked men today escape it? Fourthly, we see that God rescued Lot in verses 7 and 8. Mysteriously, in God's providence, Lot came to live among especially wicked men, and that is sometimes God's will for his children to do so. We should not think it a strange thing for a righteous man to live among wickedness, because that is, after all, what was true of the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation. Think of how Psalm 8 articulates this. Christ was made for a time lower than the angels. The one who created all angels by the word of his power, he was made lower than them for a time. He chose to be lower than them. He was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. He lived among great sinners, and he never became a sinner himself. God himself here calls Lot righteous. We all know that Lot was not sinless, but he was righteous. Lot found favor in God's sight by God's grace. Think of this in terms of how David is remembered in Scripture. The analogy of David we could apply to Lot. David was the anointed king, the man God promised an everlasting kingdom, and the one who desired a woman who was not his wife, who acted on those desires, who put this woman's husband to death, the one who had a great moral fall, when? Before God made a covenant with him? Afterwards. He had a great moral fall after God made a covenant with him. But how is David remembered in the New Testament? As that great sinner that he actually was? He's remembered as a man after God's own heart. Is not God gracious to remember David that way? So by contrast, think of the Lord Jesus. 
He was sinless, but he lived among sinful men. He lived among wicked men and never became a wicked man himself. And think of the contrast between Christ and Lot. Lot, after a time, started to reflect the evil culture around him. Christ remained steadfast and immovable. Lot was relatively better, relatively more righteous than those around him. Christ, at every point, remained in absolute holiness. Lot, in some ways, conformed to those around him. Christ conforms his people to himself. Even the strongest, most mature believer can be tempted and can fall in circumstances like Lot lived in. Christ takes the worst sinner and conforms him to his own glorious image. As the hymn says, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus forgiveness receives. Peter goes on to say that Lot was greatly distressed by the wickedness that took place around him. There was no fear of the Lord, only the indulgence of sinful desires. And it was, it was right for Lot to feel this way. It, it is right for the believer to have grief over any evil that he sees. It is, it, is, it is right for the believer to feel this. But ask yourself, what are you more concerned about? What others are doing or the fact that you are a great sinner? Are you waiting for other people to change while you do nothing about yourself? Does the culture grieve you more than your own sin? Are you waiting for the other person to change before you do, whether it's a spouse or child or whomever? Lot was greatly distressed by the sin that was taking place around him. In other words, he was worn down or oppressed by all that was going on around him. What was going on around him was tormenting him. No, Lot was not perfect, but he did have the proper response to ungodliness, true sorrow in his heart. Yes, Lot is a mixed bag, just like the rest of us, but God rescued righteous Lot. Lot was righteous, and he was so by grace alone, just as you and I are. So God rescued Lot, which leads us, fifthly, that God will do the same for you. We've seen four examples of God's judgment and salvation, four instances of God showing his wrath and his grace in his appointed time. So what implication does Peter draw for his readers from these examples from biblical history? Look at verse 9 again. If all these things are true, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. If God knew when to execute judgment and salvation in his perfect wisdom then, does he not know how to do it now? Again, a comfort for the godly, a balm to the soul of all who know the Lord Jesus, and a terror for the wicked. A terror for the wicked. God did not spare angels. He will not spare you. God did not spare the whole world in Noah's day. Why would he, not spare, you? Why would he spare you? God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah. He will not spare you. It could not be clearer. 
Don't dismiss talk of angels as speculation or as neat or interesting. Don't dismiss the flood as a child story. Don't dismiss Sodom and Gomorrah as religious propaganda. These are all clear signs that you should expect the same judgment to fall upon you if you do not turn and repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. All these examples are a terror for the wicked, but at the same time they are comfort for the godly. God delivered Noah. God delivered Lot. He will also deliver you. And as extraordinary as Noah's deliverance was, the ark in the midst of the great flood, as extraordinary as Lot's deliverance was, leaving these wicked cities that were destroyed by the fire of God's wrath, the rescue of God's people when Christ returns will far surpass what happened to Noah and to Lot. It will pale by comparison. Christ will return. He will bring in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. We will receive our resurrection bodies. And we will be rescued from all our trials and temptations. You notice that Peter uses the word trials in verse 9. The word is actually singular. So, so it could read, The Lord knows to rescue the godly from trial. Think of how Paul talks about this in a similar way in Romans 8, verse 26, when he says, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Singular. Not weaknesses, as in a list of things that we need help with, but weakness. Our, our entire condition, Paul says there, is weakness. It is in our condition of weakness that the Spirit helps us. Now, similar to what Peter is saying here. The Lord knows to rescue the godly from trial. What three things plague the believer in, the, in this present evil age? World, flesh, and devil, right? So our whole existence before the consummation of the kingdom can rightly be called trial, the whole condition, or in Paul's terms, weakness. But the Lord knows to rescue the godly from trials. The Lord knows. He knows. If God did it for them, will he not also do it for you? If he did it for Noah, if he did it for Lot, he will do it for you as well. Calvin says well here, that God knows when it is expedient to deliver the godly from temptation. So Christian, in your life of trial, remind yourself of who God is. God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. He is love. He is wisdom. On and on the list could go. We do not understand our circumstances, but we know the one who has ordained them. We do not know the future, but we know the one who knows the future. The Lord rescued Lot, he will rescue you. The Lord knows. He knows to rescue his people, he knows to keep the righteous under punishment, and he knows when to bring his redemption and his judgment to consummation. It could scarcely be said better than in Article 37 of the Belgic Confession regarding the final judgment particularly for, for those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus. It says, The faithful and elect shall be crowned with glory and honor, 
and the Son of God will confess their names before God his Father and his elect angels. All tears shall be wiped from their eyes, and their cause, which is now condemned by many judges and magistrates as heretical and impious, their cause will then be known to be the cause of the Son of God. And for a gracious reward, the Lord will cause them to possess such a glory as never entered into the heart of man to conceive. Therefore, we expect that great day with a most ardent desire to the end that we may fully enjoy the promises of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Christian life is more than a contemplation of our future inheritance in the new heavens and new earth, but it is not less. So may we be marked by a great contemplation and an encouragement to one another of that great day, as the Belgian Confession says, the glory that we will possess such as never entered into our heart to conceive. May that be so. And God's people said...